How was the flight back? Not bad. I went... Uh, Did you get yourself an exit row? Yeah, they moved me out of it because I can't speak Spanish. Oh, seriously? Not good enough to, you know, open a door, I guess. I didn't know you had to speak Spanish. Yeah. Well, I guess that makes sense. Flying back, right? You Were, yeah. were you on a Colombian or so Mexican Air, airline? Mexico. Well, then I can understand why you'd need to be able to speak Spanish to sit in the exit row. I told them I was experienced. I'd opened that door six or seven times already. What's the problem? You know, navigating this new world archery site reminds me of dating a supermodel. Because it really looks good, but boy, it's difficult. <laughs> I'll leave it at that. Yeah. All right, so I'm here with Steve the Big Cat Anderson. I'm George Tekmachov. It's Easton Podcast 12, I think. And uh, Steve's just back from Columbia, having shot the uh, last stage of the World Cup. And uh, we've got uh, a number of things on the agenda today. One of the big ones, of course, is going to be to answer a pile of questions that's come in to podcast at eastontp.com. So we're going to try to tackle those. But first, we're, we're just going to review the, uh, the fun in Medellin. And Steve, you, uh, you shot well, took a gold medal in the team round, along with, uh, with Rhea Wild and Braden Galantine. Mm-hmm. So things went well from your perspective on that end. I, I know you're disappointed on the, on the World Cup side. Yeah, on the individual side, I needed one more spot, and I would have had a, a place in the final. So You're technically the alternate then. Yeah, I'm not counting on being there. But, uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a good tournament, at least on the, on the team side for well, us. You know, you, you could have encouraged good. one of those other guys to eat the hotel sushi or something. And yeah, I suppose. Something, something got me sick there. And I heard a lot of the Italians as well. So, Is that right? Yeah. A little bit of food poisoning to uh, cap off the week. And I wasn't able to practice before the team round. Basically, that was the, the first time I had picked up my bow in a couple of days. And That's awful. It, it felt incredible, though. I shot awesome. So, Well, sometimes, <laughs> you know, um, sometimes when you're feeling under the weather, your focus is adjusted in such a way that you can perform better. Yeah. You know, that sounds counterintuitive, but it's true. Yeah, maybe a, a day off to relax a little bit helped me. Who knows? I'm not sure I'd recommend that method. No, but, I, uh, I'm not looking for food poisoning on any further trips. Okay. So looking at the brackets for the, uh, for the World Cup final, and uh, as we pull up the results list, let's start with the compound men for the World Cup final, which is going to take place in Mexico City. Well, Mike Schlusser, Mr. Perfect, is number one on that uh, on that list, Steve. Yeah, he had two silver medals and I think somewhere around a sixth or seventh place to finish out the year. So, so he was locked in after the second stage. Yeah, he was uh, pretty much a lock after the second stage. Uh, confirmed it after the third. You know, I don't I don't recall Sebastian Pinot having such a great year, but clearly he has because he's second on this list. Yeah, he won twice. So uh, I mean, it. Uh, he never qualified really well. Uh, he he did qualify well in in China, I believe. But so he's um, had a good start, but yeah. then after that, he just kind of you know he didn't he kind didn't, of faded away. And then but but not because you know clearly he shot yeah. well enough to be second here. Real wild, um, you know, had a disappointment in in uh, Copenhagen for sure. And I think I'm putting that very mildly. And in a moment, we'll talk about another shooter that had a similar disappointment. But uh, yeah, it should be fun to talk about. Oh my. Uh, Rio's third, ranked third. Martin Damsbo uh, is ranked fourth. Uh, Virma Abhishek Virma of uh, of India, who uh, I once saw shoot something like fifty consecutive tens. I mean, just an amazingly good shooter when he's on. Yeah, he's from India and he is number five. 
Dominic Genet, uh, another guy who's kind of, you know, not not been real high on the radar, but clearly shooting consistently well. Yeah, he had a quality year. He had one bronze, and then he had a bunch of other decent finishes, and that got him in. And then one of the guys that you predicted for glory in Copenhagen, who um, I, he didn't have such a great tournament in Copenhagen, but obviously he's he's done well, and he is Demir Emigakli of Turkey, uh, who is sixth. And, of course, then Mexico will be getting a slot as the host country, which unfortunately pushes you to uh, just off the just yeah. off the list. If so, any one of those guys that we just described decides not to go, you will be going. I haven't heard anything yet. I'm not not planning on. And it, you're so. not planning on any Tanya Harding type action. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm I'm actually kind of looking forward to having the season wrapped up. Okay, getting ready, maybe refocusing for indoor. Of course, we've got some business-related stuff that's going to keep us really yeah. busy in the next few weeks. Yeah, with sales meeting and product launch. And yeah, new product launch is always a lot of fun, but yeah. oh my, it's a lot of work. So yeah. uh, a lot going on there. Let's uh, let's move on to the recur uh, compound women. The compound women's list uh, is no surprise in some areas. Uh, Sarah Lopez. I'm not surprised to see her number one. Nope. The archer from Colombia has just been shooting really well, in spite of, you know, just uh, having some technical problems here and there, with uh, mostly related to rain and mm-hmm. and the use of an optic in her rear peep sight. Yeah, hopefully. Uh, I think that's probably sorted out by now. Uh, no, no, it has not. Is that so? No. Tell me the story. I believe she's still using a clarifier, so she will. Uh, anytime there's rain, she will have to be certain to keep that thing dry. And I'd be keeping a can of compressed air handy or yeah, something, maybe. Or just a standard peep insert. Uh-huh. That would be probably the, the wise choice. Natalia Avdieva of the Russian Federation is second. Natalia's had a good year. Yeah, she won. Uh, she did win in Poland. Um, other than that, she's had a bunch of solid finishes. That's I mean, that's really the key to getting into the final. Do you uh, have a couple good ones and a bunch of other decent do you, finishes? Do you know much about this third shooter here on the list? Linda Ochoa. Another yeah. thing or two, yeah. I've heard. Yeah. So. All right. So, congratulations, Steve. Your wife is number three. Yeah, the wife made it for the World Cup final. That's awesome. I'm sure she's she's really happy to have you uh, helping her get ready for that too. Yes. Uh, her teammate uh, Stephanie Salinas is uh, fourth, and um, that means, of course, that you know the two Mexican women uh, who are in this thing made it in spite or you know without needing to dip into the yeah the. They didn't have to use their auto qualifier. Yeah, they, they didn't need that because they, they, they finished own. really well. Yeah. Andrea Marcos of Spain is fifth. Nice to see Crystal Galvin's hard work paying off. She is sixth. And Alejandra Uschiano of Colombia is number eight. Yeah, it's interesting. They have eight and seven reversed right there. Yeah, I'm not sure what's going on there. That's a website issue, I suppose. Maybe so. We'll get a clarification. It uh, looks like right now, if you look at the uh, ranking, I think it means that Maria, Maria Vinogradova of the Russian Federation is going to have that uh, bubble position. Well, she should be. She's in regardless, seven okay. or eight, because of the Mexicans are already in. Yeah. All right. So that's helpful for the compound women's situation. Uh, for the mixed teams, uh, for the women and men, uh, Denmark is going to be number one. That's all they take. Yeah. Just the one team. So yeah, Denmark so, against Mexico. Yep. Denmark against the host country. And Slovenia was right behind them, but... Uh, you know, not enough to catch Denmark. They were uh, six points different. That's a lot. Let's look at the recurves. Um, <laughs> let's see. Korea, Korea, America, Korea. <laughs> so that means the third Korean is off. Uh, Kim Woo-jin is number one, and Lee Seng-yun, his teammate, is number two. Brady Ellison 
His third. Brady's got to be stoked. Yeah, six in a row for him. Yeah, really, really a heck of a run and another opportunity to, to win a World Cup final. Mm-hmm. But he's going to have a tough road to hoe with those Koreans ahead of him. Yeah, I mean, it's for anyone, there's a lot of great shooters on there. You look at the list, and yeah. it's I, interesting I, how many Koreans are on the top eight. Well, it's normal, Four you know. But <laughs> here are the odd men out. We've got Ku Bon Chan out because Ku, um, you can't have more than two. Yeah, I'm not sure I agree with that rule, personally. I think you take your eight best shooters, but they want to make it. I think they're a, worried that if they take their eight best shooters, you end up with eight Koreans someday, especially maybe in the women's category. But, yeah, know, I mean, you know, that that could happen. Right. Sorry you earned your place. You don't get to go because we're doing charity cases. Well, okay, that's a little rough, but okay. I mean, you know, here here's here's another example of how that kind of thing works. In, in the Pan Am games originally, I mean, for a long time, I, I don't think that's the case anymore. If you were from the same country, you weren't allowed to podium all three places. So frequently, you'd have an American taken off the podium who would have been third, and you'd have somebody from another Pan-American country put on the podium. And and I don't think anybody... That's sour. That is a sour taste for anybody. Yeah, that's pretty disgraceful. But let's understand that in the case of World Cup, you know, we're really talking about a media event as much as anything else here. And I think for the interest of the media, having it completely dominated by one country maybe is not so uh, great of an idea. And I, I'm sure that that's really the philosophy here. Yeah, and I, I understand the philosophy. I just feel bad for the people it affects because yeah. they're the ones who really suffer from it. Well, it's an interesting point of view, and as usual, um, I'm glad you didn't hold back and say it. Uh, J.C. Valadon, our good friend, the field shooter, uh, the bow hunter <laughs> from France. Mm-hmm. There's a term you don't hear every day, the no. bow hunter from France. He is uh, ranked fifth right now. Xing Yu of China is fifth, so it looks like Colin Klimchek is just off. Uh, we'll call in at seven will get to go because of the people who aren't going. Ah, okay. So, so clue us in here. What's your knowledge on that right Well, now? because of Korea having three ahead of him, one of those. Will oh, you're off. right. You know what? I miscounted. Uh, because Ku is out, Collins in. And Ojin Hyuk is out because Mexico will get that last slot. Yeah. What do you think? It'll be Luis Alvarez that'll, that they'll uh, field for that one? Or do you think it'll be... Uh, no idea. Probably him or... Uh, there's another one. I, Could I be Juan Rene. Um, no? The other one has had some better results. I okay. I can't remember his name, but Luis, probably, uh, who knows. Luis had a little trouble today in the uh, in the test event, I think. So I guess we'll see next week. We'll have an update on that. Yeah. Let's look at the uh, women's category here. Choi Misun, Kibo Bay, Kang Che Young. One, two, so three it's one, two, Korea. three from Korea. And Kaori Kawanaka from Japan, who shoots like a Korean. Mm-hmm. So... Um, you know that she will actually be third. Yep, she'll move up to third. Miss Kang will probably drop off. By the way, Korea reserves the right to put whoever they want in this thing. Yeah. So in reality, they may substitute somebody out. They may, depending on what their goals are at any given time. Remember yeah. that they've got the Asian Championship to prepare for, and that's going to be important for them. Right. Or someone could have just you know completely forgot how to shoot the bow and yeah. decided we want to be more competitive. So maybe. But you know, I mean, here's the thing: with the Asian Championship looming first week of November. Focus. Korea is going to be really focused on that thing. And, um, you know, so will Japan. But uh, Kaori has um, some teammates behind her with some depth. So, you know, should she need to make a choice, which I don't think is going to be the problem here, um, you know, she'll have coverage. Uh, Anna Maria Rendon of Columbia ranked fifth, so that makes her uh, fourth. Mackenzie Brown. That's really nice to see an American woman um, in this thing. 
Um, yeah, it was one result that got her there, the the win in Poland. Uh, when a lot of the countries weren't there, she picked up 25 points. Yeah, but as we speak, she's shooting really well in the test event, too. I mean, she's yeah. really coming on strong this season. Yeah, she's had a great a, kid. A good finish here. Awesome, awesome lady. And we've got, um, let's see, Hong Sunam of Korea, who's going to be six. So she drops off, bringing up Deepika Kumari, potentially, from India, which leaves Chinese Taipei out of the mix. Li Cheng Ying of Chinese Taipei and Katuna Lorig of the United States not not moving into the into the uh, competition slot because of the uh, fact that Mexico will get the seventh place slot. Yes. So the mixed teams for the recurves, it's uh, Mexico versus Korea. It'll be Korea with the number one mixed team slot uh, just blowing away everybody else behind them. 48 points ranking for Korea, 34 points for China, 32 points for Japan. So Yeah, 48 points, and they only went to three events. Yeah, and let's understand Mexico coming into this, uh, 26 points for Mexico coming up against uh, Korea at uh, – well, you never know. Mexico always shoots good in the mixed teams. And, and let's not forget it's their home field. You know, this is going to be a home crowd. They're going to love to uh, cheer for their team, and I think we're going to see a, a great match yes. coming up here. So that, that, uh, that's the status of the World Cup as we, as we move forward. I think that there's um, potential there for a terrific competition, and I think we'll look forward to it when it takes place in Mexico City in a few weeks. Should be fun to watch. I'm pulling for for Linda, obviously. Obviously, I, I think we all are. She's our official uh, Easton favorite for this event. Uh, I'll just say that. I'll Appreciate probably it. get myself in trouble with everybody else because they're all Easton <laughs> shooters. But she's she's certainly uh, close to our hearts here. Yeah. All right. So um, we're going to shift gears and we're going to take an opportunity, I think, to uh, catch up on some back mail. Uh, a bunch of which has come up in the last few days. We've just gotten a ton of email at Easton at podcast at EastonTP.com. So uh, I've got it here on my screen, and I've made a copy for you, and I've got a whole bunch of email that um, I think we can catch at any particular, particular. Um, yeah, you want to talk about something else first, don't you? Yeah, okay. All right. Scorecards. You know, um, we touched upon briefly the situation with Rio Wild, scorecard situation in Copenhagen where Rio had uh, signed for an incorrect score, you know, and, and that was legitimately a mistake because there was a very clear set of digits on there, and whether you, whether you agree with the rule or not, the rule is the rule, and, and Rio was, you know, um, the victim of the circumstance of the rule, which is if you sign for a score of 200 and something and you shot 300 and something, you get 200 and something, and that didn't just take Rio to... The, near the bottom of the list, but it also took the American team out of contention for the first time in I don't know how long for a uh, medal round. Probably forever. Well, a long time. And uh, bitter disappointment for everybody involved. And, and I'm sure bitter disappointment for for world archery. I mean, come on. It's not good for an event. It's not good for world archery not to have the top guys, you know, in there. And now, boom, here we are, uh, what, seven, eight weeks later, and we've got another situation that's arguably just as bad, if not arguably worse, with Ojin Hyuk having signed an incorrect scorecard and going from probably would have been fourth or fifth to last in the ranking round at the World Cup, uh, excuse me, at the uh, test event 
for the Olympic event. Games. The the reigning Olympic champion drops and and comes up against uh, Raul team, Banerjee. Right? I think is how it's going to work out on the uh, on the bracket. I thought it was Raul, but I could be wrong. I was uh, looking yeah, at the probably because because of the buys. Yeah, he'll end up in the same bracket as his teammate. Well, the point is that it's yeah exactly, and you know I mean that's just not good for the sport. It's not good for, obviously good for O. It's not good for the Korean team. It's not good for world archery. I, I, I posit that the system is broken and needs reform. You know, we used to have two scorecards and an electronic device. We still had problems when that was going on, you know, but there was more of a chance to f- catch the problems, I guess. And now, you know, um, and it's not the first time that we've had a Korean with a mistake like this. It's not the first time that we've had a compound shooter make a mistake or a recurve shooter make a mistake. We've seen mistakes before. And um, they're costly to the shooter, but they're now they're getting to the point where you could argue they're more costly to the sport. Yeah, it's a problem for the whole sport, the industry, everyone who supports it. It creates huge issues when the people who are out there working four years can potentially be eliminated because of a piece of paper. I mean... We go to these events to shoot arrows and, and put ourselves to the test on the target face, not on the scorecard. If something so simple and trivial can totally eliminate you from everything you've worked towards, then what what is the point? Let's just go show up and all practice signing scorecards, and whoever signs it the best wins. Okay, I understand your point, and I, you know I understand your anger at the situation too. By the way, because you know I, I get it, I, and you're an American team member, and I get the effect that that had on the team overall in Copenhagen. But I'll, I'll just give you the counterpoint because it's part of my job. And the counterpoint is, if it's that important, make sure the darn scorecard is right. Agreed, yeah. And that's kind of been the the uh, route we've been taking. When we, when we go to tournaments now, if you're on the American team, you pretty much take the piece of paper and you fill it out yourself. Uh, you just can't trust the way other people write their numbers. You can't trust the way other people right at all i mean with their in regards to their legibility yeah. take responsibility for yeah. your scorecard so which the, the issue here is that O did have his own scorecard i heard it was he his did, teammate that filled it out by the way uh, world archery reported it was his own uh, it was a twitter feed from world archery i don't mm-hmm. think that was correct in in the end i think it was actually his t- okay we'll find Regardless, out it doesn't yeah. matter the point is the point is this isn't good for the sport this isn't good for the media. This isn't. Good. This is not a good news story. The only good thing that happened here is that it happened at a test event, yes. not at the real thing. Because if it did happen at the real thing, heads would roll somewhere. I think I know where. I don't. I don't. But I'm saying heads would roll somewhere, and that's all I'm going to say about it. Except to say that, you know, uh, until this gets some kind of reform, until until the World Archery Executive Committee or the Congress decides to do something because it's their choice, it's their thing, this is their bailiwick, um, watch your darn scorecards. I mean, there's you just can't say it enough. Yeah, I mean, the simple fact of the matter is if there's an issue with the scorecard, logic and common sense should prevail. They should go through and add up that one particular scorecard and figure out what the actual true score should be. I agree, but the problem is, you know, um, they've got to stick to a schedule. And it, you could argue it's selfish or stupid for a shooter to hold up the event or screw up a bracket because they can't be relied on to properly fill out a scorecard, Steve. Agreed, but how long can it really take? I mean, I, if everyone filled it out wrong and they're manually going through them, yeah, it might take all night, but guess what? We don't shoot the brackets till the next day anyways. 
they're there to run a world-class event, they can stay up all night and work on it. And they have before, I can tell you that. I can assure you of that because I've participated in the process of staying up all night and fixing all the wrong scorecards and, and uh, all that sort of thing. So, all right, enough, enough on that except to say that uh, this Something is needs to change. It's a horrible situation yeah. for Ojin Hyuk, and it's a horrible situation for world archery, in my opinion. They, they don't want to have this situation. Nobody wants it. No, it changes the whole dynamic of the tournament. I mean, I'll be the first to say that if Rio hadn't been eliminated in Copenhagen, the tournament outcome would have been a lot different. It would have been different. We don't know what it would have been, but it certainly yeah. arguably would have been different. You move everyone who was underneath him down one spot in the, in the bracket and put him back in there, another great competitor there, changes a lot of things, you know? Sure, sure. And that's, I think, the last word on that for a while until we, you know, hear until about. Until we get a bunch of emails about it. Well, you know, that's going to happen. I, I just, you know, I, I take pride in the fact that we can say what we want to say, but I also want to make sure that we are fair to everybody involved here. And and in all fairness, first, it is absolutely the right thing for World Archery to make the rules what they are from the standpoint of you know sticking to. No matter who it is, you screw up, yeah. you get treated the same. Doesn't yeah. matter if you're the first time you're at an event or you're you're the reigning Olympic champion. Right. Well, they so, have to now. Well, they did before. I mean, you know, you can't comment on that. I don't know for sure. Well, I can tell you for sure. They always have. So you know, you can't argue about the integrity of the rule keeping. You know that that part I know personally has been at the highest standard. Whether you like it or not, that's just how it has been. Um, Nobody in world archery would ever screw with the rules to try to give some shooter an advantage. That's just not going to happen. No, not going to happen from a judge. Not going to happen from the uh, powers that be behind the scenes. It's just not because they, those guys, that's where the line is drawn. There is absolutely no chance that world archery would do something wrong uh, deliberately to try to give somebody an advantage of some sort. It's just not going to happen put a lot of faith in people. No, I'm there. I mean, I've been there. I'm, I'm not there anymore, but I can tell you that I've, I've seen it and I know how they do what they do. And right. I, there's no screwing around with the jury of appeal. Those guys generally know what they're doing and, and, and stick to the principles that are behind the rules, not just the rules themselves. Yeah. So, well, let's just hope that the uh, World Archery Congresses can make a change to the rule and we can move forward without having to worry about any of these silly issues that really create huge waves across the sport. Yeah, you and I agree on that 100%. All right. Switching gears, if you're ready. Are, are you over this now? Or are you still you look a little upset? Yeah, I think uh I think every time I think about it, I just think how ridiculous it is. I'm just I'm like looking at you and you're kind of scary, you know, you're 6 foot 9 and and scary. So, That's what that's what the basketball commentators used to say, isn't it? Oh, that uh, an inch or so. Yeah. All right. Yeah, definitely not six nine. All right. Well, at least we got we got you uh, smiling again. Uh, let's look at our let's look at our mailbag. Um, we've got a long mailbag here, so we're going to pick and choose here. I'm going to start with this first one. This guy that wrote in is Jim Forbes, and I know Jim, and, and I think maybe you may not know Jim, but Jim used to be a top compound guy. Yeah, he reached out to me on uh, the Facebook, but I, I do not know him personally. So um, Jim's a great guy. He is uh, thanking us for the Shot Execution Under Pressure podcasts. Uh, that would be the one you and I did and the one that uh, that I did with Jay Barr is talking about Shot Execution Under Pressure. So he's got some specific questions for you, Steve, and he wants to know this. Steve, are you light on your release hand or do you have a handful? 
I shoot a honey badger claw set to where I pretty much can draw it with all three fingers. Uh, I do not draw my three-finger release with three fingers. I draw it with about 80% of weight on my index finger, 20% on my middle finger, and, and my ring finger is off the release. And then as I come to anchor, I get into it, rotate it to click, and, and go from there. So I guess you could say I'm fairly light on the release. Not trying to pull the wheels off. No. All right, and then he's got another question. He says that he's an over-aimer. He was working to get away from it. It's like losing control for a type A. Any more tips? Uh, honestly, you know, he says he's shooting hundreds of arrows just working on focus, rhythm, and timing. Well, keep it up. But stay on the line is the other is the other tip. Stay on the line. Stay out of the target. Maybe take off your scope and go to an open ring for a while. That might be one strategy that you could use. Yeah, over-aiming is uh, usually... For me, when I'm over-aiming, I'm under-executing, so I try to switch focus and just think about executing the release. And you're, you're, Here's, here's my, my thought process on that. When you drive your car and you're on a, a straight road, you aren't holding the steering wheel still. You're constantly moving it back and forth, left to right. It's the same thing with aiming. I mean, you're trying to keep everything straight, but there's going to be movement. You're going to have some, some wavering, but... Your mind's going to move everything back to the middle, so just trust that and work on your execution. Okay. Next question came from Eric Jansen, who wants to ask Steve uh, if you can explain about your 3D setup. Uh, he's interested in trying out the SuperDrive 25, but wants to hear some info on the uh, arrow from somebody that's actually shot it, and he'd like to hear your thoughts on veins versus feathers. We'll start with the uh, the SuperDrive question. Yeah, on the SuperDrive, uh, I don't shoot a whole lot of 3D, but... I did set up a 3D bow this year. I shot those with about a 30 and a half inch overall length, so it was cut right at the front of my shelf or thereabouts. Um, when I think of the Super Drive, I think of um, Darren Christenberry. Do you? Uh, yeah, I was kind of. Have any thoughts there about what he's doing? I have no idea, to be honest. But I think most guys are shooting them. They aren't. They aren't leaving them long. I mean, it's it's a 290 spine arrow, so it's depending on your setup, it might be stiff. Depending on your setup, it might be just right but uh for me it's it's about just right so i just cut it right at the front of the shelf and i use 125 grain point and that keeps me within the speed limit for an asa event um i think uh, darren does pretty much the same thing he might use 100 grain point i'm not sure there but i think he cuts them right to about the front of his shelf or just inside there he was using pin knocks on those uh as far as i recall um i think darren was using the g bushing I'm not for sure. He had he switched up, and I switched up a few times. I was originally using the pin bushing, then I went to the G bushing using the, the uh, deep six knock, which I really, really like. Yeah, that's really a, a, a knock that we developed more than 20 years ago um, for the sole purpose of being really durable for a compound. And, um, you know, we didn't bring it out back then, but uh, it really works well. Yeah, I remember seeing some early adaptations of it in ACE shafts. Right, that's where that's where we yeah, first tested it. Super short. Um, we called them stubby knocks yeah, back then. It's, it's basically straight to the ears, and it's an awesome knock. So it just it has good string fit. I mean, on a hundred and ten, hundred and twelve thousand center serving is pretty ideal. A lot of stuff we do sometimes it's before it's time, and you know we don't bring it out for a while. So yeah, in this particular we case, might have some know. of that in the bag right now. Who yeah, knows? It could be. All right, so he also wants to talk to you about veins versus feathers for indoor arrows. Yeah, veins versus feathers. Um, I use veins. I prefer them just because of the durability. I don't like fletching my arrows. I shot with feathers before. I shot with veins. I, I 
can't really tell a difference in scores. So they both shoot excellent. All right, let me ask you about um, some rumblings I'm hearing from some of the top guys that they prefer to use a little softer vein for for a little more drag factor indoors. Yeah, I've heard that before from Rio, Logan, uh, old buddy Kevin Wilkie. Was I think always, a couple of the French guys are shooting yeah, something similar. Yeah, they all like a, a vein real thin, real soft. It kind of flaps around. Acts like a feather a little more. Yeah, um, I'm sure it works great. I, I uh, have had such good success with just a standard Eastern Diamond vein type. Yeah, you know, yeah. I, I use the AAE version, but it's the same as our Eastern Diamond vein 380, and I have had no issues. With those, no reason to change. But uh, I'll say this about feathers: feathers are awesome. They look great, but out of a high-speed compound, I'm not sure whether they're uh, the best choice. Yeah, I think they they just lay down too easily. It's possible. Yeah. But, I mean, we're shooting if you're shooting a 27, 12, or something like that. You're not getting a ton of speed. They they functioned well for me in the past. Feathers have just they lack durability. If you're shooting a bow that you struggle to get cable clearance, feathers are a necessity. I mean. There's a top-level shooter, made a switch back to feathers this year, and everyone said, hey, what the heck, why are you using feathers? Um, it was because his bow wouldn't clear the cables. Some well. of these bows, they have shoot-through systems. But in the old days, they'd have to use feathers for those. Yeah. So, I mean, that's that's one thing to take note of if you're contacting cables or if it's at all an issue. You know, I'm talking like the old old Martin uh, X oh, configuration, yeah, yeah, you know, the ones with the split and cables. and yeah. yeah, I mean, crazy stuff, but... Uh, Obviously effective in the right hands. Right. Um, let's see. Uh, your choice of magnification. Um, indoors, I use a six-power lens or .75 diopter is a better way of describing it. Yeah. Um, and, of course, that, the power of that's going to vary depending on your draw length. Then. Yeah. So, for me, I mean, for me, that's probably at a 34-inch sight radius. That's probably like a, a guy with a... 30-inch sight radius using a 7, maybe. I don't know there for sure, but um, I don't... We, we talked about this in the shot execution. I don't like to go too heavy to where I feel like I'm seeing a lot of movement. 6 is pretty ideal. And then Scott's last question is, uh, what kind of reticle are you recommending? Or um, Derek's question, rather. I use a... Just a stick-on dot. Pretty small, I, I think, by most people's standards. Mine fits inside the Vegas 10 ring. So on a on a good face with good lighting indoors, I can actually see the 10 ring and just barely make it out and stick a dot inside there. I've known a few good shooters who actually have a big enough dot that it actually occludes the 10 ring. Yeah, a lot of guys will cover yellow. You know, they'll get a, a dot that covers yellow or shows them just a sliver of yellow. I, I don't like that, personally. I like to be able to see it a little bit. Um... But, yeah, to each their own. Okay. So thanks for those questions, Eric. And uh, moving on here, we've got a, uh, a message from Scott who uh, says that he's enjoying the podcasts. Thank you for that. And he would like to talk about string material, trends and tips for both recurve and compound. Yeah, I think this is important because I, uh, I don't think enough recurve people pay attention to what they're using. And I think a lot of compound people get wrapped up in the new stuff and whatever's coming out and it's this or that has got to be better and... You see a lot of issues on the on the course because of that, but I'll, I'll let you touch on recurve and then I'll address compound. Well, let's talk generally. First of all, there's a lot of new stuff coming out. It seems almost every um, six months or so, and, and one reason for that, by the way, is because uh, BCY, which is the main, uh, I would say, main supplier these days here in the United States and around the world, is constantly doing two things. One, 
tweaking to improve, and two, um, making sure their supply chain is stable. And what am I saying? I'm saying that it's hard to buy some of these materials in the quantities that the archery industry uses them in. And so um, when, for example, 8125G was developed, the reason for the G, that's a gore fiber, that was meant as a filler because they had to change the denier, the, the fiber count, because they couldn't get a hold of the material that they'd previously been using. So they, they uh, used the gore material as a filler for that thing to keep the mass down but keep the performance the same so that you wouldn't have to um, change your serving techniques, for example, to accommodate your knock. Right, Keep the, it kept the uh, overall diameter the same. But i got to point something out. The Koreans, generally, are still using fast flight, original spectra-based fast flight material, which, you know, I mean, that stuff's 30 years old. It was originally developed by Hoyt, in fact, for the compound market for what they called back then their AIM system, which was the first fully synthetic rigging, because before that you had steel cables yeah, in your compound. Yeah, first real bow cables, or real... Yeah. Synthetics. Yeah. Yeah. Well, first reliable ones for sure. Yeah. And, um, you know, it was one of those situations where the Koreans, once they got them to work, you know, obviously everybody and their mother switched away from Kevlar just as fast as they could because that stuff was unreliable. And um, as soon as as soon as the Koreans got onto the, the fast flight, they never looked back, but they haven't looked forward a whole lot either, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, I guess you find something that works and you, you stick with it. If your string is not an issue for you and you're maintaining brace height over the course of a day, then why why make a change? And that's the key, of course, is maintaining brace height over the course of a day. You do want a certain number of twists in your recurve string, no matter what material you've made it from. You don't want too many twists so the thing turns into a uh, cat toy when you're taking it off your bow. But you do want to have enough twists that it has a little bit of cushioning and quiets it down a bit. Uh, also, it makes it somewhat less susceptible to creeping um, in heat. So, um, in general terms, you know, your, any of your first-line materials are going to be good. Some of them have some minor differences in both performance and, and feel characteristics. Uh, the, the only material that I've seen so far that really is very, very different than anything else out there is still Angel Majesty, which has that uh, thermal-activated coating. It's almost like a like a polymer coating on there, and if you if you behave properly with that particular string material, it doesn't move once you've got it locked down. Pretty solid stuff. I, I really like it a lot. In fact, um, you know, I know that the that material is used by some high-end string makers for the purpose of serving. So, you know, really good stuff. But uh, you pay for it. You know. Yeah, and you get what you pay for too. Yeah. Compound side. Uh, on the compound side, I will say I've been lucky that I have a, a close friend who builds my strings for me, a guy named Tom Parkinson in Mountain Home, Idaho. Um, I met Tom when I was really first starting out in archery at a local 3D tournament forever ago. I guess it would be about six years ago or so. And uh, um, Tom's a really well-connected builder. He's actually oftentimes prototyped stuff for BCY. He was doing some stuff with Brownell before. Um, so he's given me the opportunity to test a lot of that stuff before it hits the market as well. And, I mean, starting with 452X from BCY, that was the one I always used. Um, it's a blended material, Dyneema and uh, Vectran, super, super stable stuff. 
uh, fuzzes up a little bit. That's the only real downside. The vector intensifies. Yeah, the vector, and it's like a. It looks like a Velcro under a microscope, I guess. Well, yeah, it's a liquid crystal polymer, and it's very susceptible to abrasion. So, uh, you know, for the last twenty something years, BCY has has been adjusting and and working to improve both how that stuff's commingled with the spectra-based or Dyneema-based fiber, mm-hmm. and also how they seal it. You know, and and that all matters. Now, you're using a um, special run of material with no color. Yeah, I use the natural color 452X. You can just buy that, right? Yeah, yeah, because it doesn't have dye in it. Um, keeps the size down a little bit. So, yeah, the, the way the dye is applied, it's actually coated on there because the stuff won't actually absorb dye. So they yeah, actually it's coat it in the wax. Yeah, 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 it's kind of kind of like extra coating in there, and it makes it heavier. So um, your your mix is going to be different from color to color. Whereas if you have the natural colored stuff. You seen any downside in UV light or anything like that? I don't think there is. No, I, I haven't had any issues there. I mean, for me, the whole reason to go to natural color is to uh, increase my strand count without increasing my diameter so I can get even more stability out of more strands, um, have that reliability, and not have to worry about the diameter getting too big and having to go do something funky with my serving. So... Um, I mean, I've tried everything else, 8190, 8125. There's a new 8190F uh, trophy. You, you name it, I've had it on a bow. <laughs> so for me, 452X is old reliable. Um, works well in heat. I, I When I build a bow, I build it around going to Redding. That's the one tournament a year. I Which can be raining or can be really hot and dry. Yeah, yeah and it's the last the few years been around 100 degrees, and it's May. and Global warming. Yeah, there you go. So uh, when I set up a bow, I want it to be bulletproof, and, and part of that is it's got to be able to take three days in the in the Redding heat, and 452X time and time again has worked well for me. So I just kind of stick to that formula. By the way, do you stick your bow in the car in uh, summertime uh, after you've got a new rigging on it just to, for half an hour like some of the Hoyt guys do? Uh, yeah, I, I, I do subscribe to that theory. Um, you got to make sure you don't do damage. I mean, you can you can... You can break a limb. Uh, yeah, I, I don't think the limbs these days are going to be a problem, not on the compounds, but uh, the bearings are what I see. I mean, you can have a bearing leak out. You don't want to get too hot. Yeah, yeah, so I do leave it in there. I know some guys who leave a bow at full draw overnight, you know. In a house, not in the car. Yeah, in a house. Yeah. <laughs> and that, that works, too. Anything you can do on a on a Hoyt with a cam and a half system to stress that bus cable to the point where it's not going to move anymore is uh is ideal so they, yeah. these tricks work on other bows too i presume yeah i mean any you know any bow that has a bus cable that's generally your uh cable that's going to be under the biggest load at full draw so single cam bows well uh, those have really long bus cables yeah. well yeah. the single cams not so much their string is so long oh, it's the string is what yeah. i mean sorry yes so any anything you can do to get them worn out without wearing them out gotcha that's kind of that's kind of my theory but if you're building you know, with a good material, and you have a guy building them who knows what he's doing. Uh, with the machines they use these days, the materials we have these days, it's really, really hard to screw it up, I think. so. We've got a uh, lengthy email from an old acquaintance of mine, a uh, fellow by the name of Stretchy. <laughs> we'll, we'll just call him that. He's from Scotland, and uh, he's he's been a, a great friend for many years, and uh, so he's got a few questions. Uh, he's 
he said some nice things about the previous podcasts, but uh, stuff he'd like to hear about. Uh, what was the design thinking behind the contours? Contours are our, uh, our new stabilizer. The design thinking behind them was uh, dampen vibration and reduce drag in the wind without needing to bolt on a bunch of rubber parts. That's the bottom line. And, and, it, and they work really well. Yeah, and... You can use rubber parts on them, by the way. Right, and... Uh, but you don't necessarily need to. Just talking on that theory a little bit, I mean, when you guys were designing the contour, I was over at Hoyt and, and Fuse, and we were doing the tapered stabilizer, and we, we almost came to the same conclusion without having ever had the same discussion, you know, about this stuff. Yeah, people don't realize we're completely separate companies, yeah. so... So the, the whole premise behind these bars is that when a bow is fired the vibration occurs at the base not out at the tip of the bow so you don't need as stiff of a material or as much material out at the distal end of the stabilizer so if you go smaller to how do i say this use a smaller diameter which i mean if you if you're understanding the physics of something if you take the same amount of material and make it a larger diameter, it gets stiffer. Sure. So you use the same amount of material, but you, you taper it down to a smaller diameter or whatever. However You've got you variable there. flex. Yeah, you, you got variable well, flex. Well, the contour has got very variable flex, right? It's got one zone, it's got a second transition zone, and it's got a very, very stiff zone toward the base. And, and the way this works is you're really you're breaking up that standing wave that's created after the shot. Now, during the aiming process, it feels pretty good. It's also super light, like a balloon. We're not doing this podcast to sell stuff, but I do want to, you know, answer. The question was asked. Question yeah, we, was I asked. think we've done a good job not plugging product. Yeah, maybe too much. Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I think it's worth discussing the design. Well, it is the Easton yeah. podcast, for goodness sake. I right. Mean, you know, it's not like we're going to tell you how to set up a, another guy's arrow, but, uh, you know, we'll, we'll it, give you honest worth, answers. It, it's worth talking about the physics behind it, though. All right. So, um, the effect of finger pressure, tiller, knocking point, grip, pressure point, and how they affect the arrow in the vertical plane. Yes, they do. Come on, Stretch, you know the answer to that. <laughs> we'll, we'll get into that in another uh, recurve discussion in, in more detail. Non-standard ways to tune your bow. We've all heard some pretty weird stories from some quite successful archers. You must have a few locked in your cupboards. Yeah? I'll tell you one. I, I remember it was uh, back in the 1990s, and a guy by the name of Justin Hewish came up to me. Um, we were shooting at the Pacific Coast Championship in Sacramento, California, and Justin um, had yet to find his Olympic glory but he was a pretty good up-and-coming shooter. And this would have been the summer, I think, of 95, or maybe it would have been uh, before Atlanta. And he was on path for a 1340-something. And at the half, he came up to me and he said, Hey, I tuned my bow yesterday. Would you look at my center shot for me and tell me what you think? So I, you know, I took his bow and I put it on a chair and I stood behind it and I took a look and, to my horror... His uh, center shot was set completely opposite of textbook. But he was on path for a 1340-something. So I told him, looks good. Go ahead and finish the tournament. Afterward, we straightened it out. But he, he ended up winning the tournament with a uh, like a 49, a 1349, something like that. And so, you know, uh, what does that mean? Well, that means that consistency trumps tuning. What's the purpose of tuning? Tuning is to help weed out the variations that happen when you have a variation. Because the bow is always going to shoot the same. You can have a bow with crooked limbs, like Vladimir Shev had when he won the world championship. That, that bottom limb of Vladimir's was so bad that it, it almost threw the string. didn't matter, because he was shooting consistently. 
tuning is is to get some of the human factor out of the system, make it less susceptible to being affected by what people do. Yeah, you're making it work with the human. Yep. So it's going to work regardless. It's going to do the same thing time and time and time again. Uh, let's see here. Um, Stretchy wants to know why is the me- unmeasurable so important to archers? Feels good. It's forgiving. It's smoother. We have spent over the years. Um, I, I hate to hesitate to say the number, but it's it's in the hundreds. Well, it's in the tens of millions of dollars to quantify. Now I'm talking about Easton Easton Sports. You know the baseball bat division, the hockey division, the archery division. I'm counting Hoyt in here. We built a, a test lab in Los Angeles specifically for this purpose of quantifying feel. That right, sounds very, um, I don't know, uh, maybe sounds strange, but it's absolutely the truth. We devoted, we had we had a staff of programmers and and people dedicated to coming up with ways to measure things. We spent a lot of energy to quantify feel because... Yeah, it's important, and it's important for bows. It's important for guys hitting a hockey puck. It's important for guys hitting a baseball. It's important for guys swinging a golf club. You know, we've been OEM for many years for some major golf manufacturers back there in in Van Nuys, and so we spent a lot of, Jim Easton put a lot of emphasis on figuring out, you know, how how to quantify feel so that we could design to it. Because, you know, you can't just hand something to somebody and they go, oh, that feels good. And you hand it to the next guy and they go, oh, that doesn't feel good. You've got to understand the fundamentals behind why something behaves the way it does. And that's what we spend a lot of time to do. So the bottom line is the unmeasurable is important to archers. As to the why, well, it's because we're people and we're we're engaged in a, in a feel sport. You know, we're engaged in a sport where how something feels affects your perception. And your perception in archery can be your reality. So very much so, and that's uh, I, I can't put it any other way. I mean, I think it almost goes back to tuning your bow. I mean, when you're tuning your bow, you're trying to make the bow feel good to you as much as you are trying to achieve arrow flight, anything else. Um, for me, it's it's oftentimes in in archery, and it's uh, in compound archery. A lot of it has to do with let off, holding weight, cam timing, uh, how that's all working with me or against me. And if something doesn't feel right, it goes right back to my shot execution, you know. So, yeah, feel is super important because it goes back to the very last thing that triggers your brain to fire the shot. Finally, Stretch wants to know when the depleted uranium points will be commercially viable for X-10s. Um, actually, I started with depleted uranium and worked my way toward tungsten, but that's a story that Cheapskate. maybe for another day. And that's not expensive. It's just you can't export it. And it's toxic. But other than that, you know. Other than that, good stuff, huh? And you don't want to keep them in your pocket. <laughs> All right. No, Sounds back like in 92, back in 92, we did whatever we had to do to, you know, figure this thing out. So, All right. Hi there, George and Steve. Mark says that he picked up the sport in March as a new recurve shooter. Has a great club near L.A. to help him with many things. But wants to ask me, what skills do I wish more new archers had? Listen to your coach. Don't go out and buy a bunch of crap before you talk to your coach. <laughs> that's, that's, that's one skill I think that's useful. Um, so he wants to know if... Uh, 
Uh, and these are really good questions, by the way. This guy is obviously you know, giving this some thought. He wants to ask us, what skills do we wish more new archers had? We want to be able to help out others and bring in friends to the sport. So what would you suggest focusing on? Have fun is certainly right up there. Because if it's not fun, your friends aren't going to want to stick with it. But he's uh, he's suggesting fletching, bow tuning, and string making. Um, you know, those those are three separate things. Fletching and string making are are just you know fundamental skills that you may or may not choose to to use, but they're a fun part of the sport because they give you the opportunity to create individuality for your setup. As far as bow tuning goes, if you're a beginner, bow tuning should not be one of your top five goals. Uh, it should be working on consistency, I would say. Agreed. That and, I mean, some other important stuff. Number one, get a general understanding of the rules of the game so that if you are shooting a particular format, you aren't doing it wrong, you know. That's uh, that's first and foremost. Um Beyond that, have some appropriate etiquette, at least on the on the range. Yeah, that's a nice idea. So, just the, the basic stuff like that, I think, is first and foremost. And don't don't load your bow sideways. Yeah, and and grab someone who clearly knows what they're doing, and and ask them some questions. because yeah. no one out here is gonna say no to you. Yeah, and and when we first started this, I said, listen to your coach. That doesn't have to be a coach. That can be somebody who's more experienced, a mentor, yeah. somebody who, you know, knows their ropes a little bit, and that you respect, and you know, just. Uh, be observant and and have fun though because you know without that you're just not going to stick with it. Yeah, find someone who can show you the way. It's, Sammy, uh, uh, it's out there. Sammy, our friend in Finland, is back with a question. Why does everybody use biter plungers, Shiboya Ultimate Ultimate Arrow Rests, and Eastern Arrows? Uh, gee, because <laughs> it all works. I guess would be the the answer. Um, also, outside of USA, win and win stabilizers and Shiboya Ultimate RC sights are very popular. Are they as good as their popularity suggests, or are recurve archers lazy to test new stuff and only use what's been found working before? I yes. Uh, well, <laughs> yes is the answer to both. I don't know. I think a lot of people, recurve especially, they love to test new stuff, but they're they're critical, and when they find something that works, kind of like the Koreans, they'll go back to it. You know what? I think some people like to test new stuff, and a lot of people like to follow what some people like to shoot. Right. So uh, just to give a serious treatment to Sammy's question, because they're good questions. Why does everybody use biter plungers? Because time has proven that biter plungers don't break, are reliable. They're not the cheapest, but they are among the best. They're well-made. They're well-made. And, um, you know, Werner Biter, I, I don't care who you are, if you don't understand that he brought a tremendous passion to our sport to make the very best things that he could possibly design. Um, you know, when we lost Werner, we lost somebody very special. And um, I'll just say that uh, the reason people use biter plungers is because they work. Why do people use Shiboya Ultima Arrow Rests? Because they work. They're really, really good. Uh, why do they use Eastern Arrows? Well, the answer to that is going to be self-serving. Uh, except that we make an arrow for everybody, okay? We make an arrow. If you are listening to this and you have a bow, we make an arrow that you can use and that will perform as well as possible for you. Outside of the United States, win and win HMC plus stabilizers, well, win and win in general outside of the United States is, is pretty solid out there in the market. And a lot of recurve shooters, especially in Asia, use win and win bows because win and win works at getting their bows into the hands of shooters. That's the bottom line. They, they're popular because they work at it. Um, you know, uh, are they as good as their popularity suggests? They're, they're darn good bows. They're darn good. And the Shiboya Ultima 
uh, RC site. That is a wonderful site. It's tremendous. If you need to save some money, you can't go wrong with a Shiboya dual click. Um, now, Axel makes a great site now. And uh, I don't use one personally. I use a Shiboya personally. But the Axel site has impressed me. Uh, Ojin Hyuk uses one. Uh, they're, they're well made. And uh, the XL guys impress me. You know, they're really passionate about, uh, about archery. But if you've ever gone and visited the Shiboya uh, factory in, in Japan, uh, I can tell you that it's like an operating room. It's, it's like a hospital clean room. It's really impressive. Uh, it's a small group, mostly women, assembling the sites. You know, they, it's, it's in a rural, uh, relatively rural town in, in, uh, in uh, Japan, uh, outside of Tokyo. The, the headquarters of the company are in Tokyo, but their distribution center and where they assemble the sites is outside Tokyo. And they have these people who have been doing this for years, and they're like surgeons. They're really precise. And so the sites reflect, I think, the passion and the, the skill that, that is brought to it. I've always been very impressed whenever I've uh, had the good fortune to visit you know, the Shiboya operations there, and I can tell you they're really good. Uh, are recurve archers lazy to test new stuff? Some are. A lot of people are followers. Um, but the truth is, your top guys aren't going to use something that doesn't work. Yeah, they have the ability to get whatever they want. Yeah. So and, and they, take, they take what works best for them. And i got to point out, a lot of misconception out there, most recurve shooters do not get paid to shoot stuff. Now, some compound shooters do, but most recurve shooters do not. And I'll point something else out. The Koreans pay for their X-10s. The Koreans buy them. We don't give the Korean Federation their arrows. They buy them. So put that in your pipe and smoke it. <laughs> All right. Um, let's see. Would it be possible for an interview with Daryl Pace? He was and is a great archer and hero to me, and I think the wider archery audience would enjoy it. That's from Steve on the Isle of Wight. And Steve, absolutely agree. And we're going to try to get Daryl Pace in the next month or so. Uh, we might have to do it by Skype or by telephone, but we will absolutely make an endeavor to, uh, to get the great Archer of the Century, Daryl Pace, uh, on this podcast. And so if, uh, if there are other questions or other requests, send them to us at podcast at eastontp.com. Podcast at eastontp.com. And uh, Steve, you got anything to take us into the wrap-up here? Mm. No, I'm just glad we had uh, a little more direction. We didn't just ramble on and on and on like last time, but... Apparently, whatever we did last time, people liked. So, Well, we did ramble. We rambled. We went off in the weeds. We went back on the road. We went back in the weeds. We went back on the road. But, you know, um, hey, we really do appreciate the very kind yep. remarks that everybody has made. It's very humbling to... Uh, yeah, the more feedback, the more questions we get, the better this will become. And yeah, I mean, we're you know we're just a couple of goofballs here uh, trying to figure this out. But this I, is what we talk about day in and day out anyway, so we figure we might as well start recording it. Yeah, and so far, I, I, you know, people seem to like it, so we're going to keep going here. I'm I'm headed to Japan uh, next week. Uh, you, I am staying home and and working with Linda to get her ready for the World Cup final. I presume. Um. Uh, She's in Mexico for a cousin's wedding, so I'm, oh. I'm going to play some golf and do as little as possible. Good. Play <laughs> some golf. I'm ready to, to uh, take some time it's off. Shame about the weather out there. We've yeah. got torrential thunderstorms right now here in Utah. We need them, though. Uh, yeah. It's been a drought in the western part of the United States for a while here. All right. So uh, Steve is, Steve's gotten really quiet. You can tell when <laughs> he wants to say something. I can tell he wants to say something. I, I'm just sure that everyone is interested in the things we do all day long and what we talk about. 
not. So yeah, I, I won't mention, for example, what your what your desk looks like right at this moment. I, I won't talk about that. But what is that? A fantasy football thing? Oh, yeah. So I was uh, last place this week in fantasy football, and uh, one of our coworkers here, she she kindly took a toilet seat and decorated it, and I it's a traveling trophy, and uh, I get the toilet seat. I was wondering why there was a toilet seat hanging from your uh, from your desk. I get it now. Yeah. All right. It's not because I'm dealing with Montezuma's revenge. Well, I was I was speculating yeah, as I was to whether in South America. I did have some food poisoning, but I'm okay now. I was gonna I was gonna make that connection, but I say I didn't have to. All right. I think that's TMI. Yeah. <laughs> it really is too much information. All right. So unless somebody uh, unless somebody uh, gets Tanya Hardinged. Um, We'll be looking forward to the World Cup as spectators. And, uh, Steve, thank you for taking the time today once again. And, dear listener, thank you. Once again, uh, shoot us an email at eastontp.com, podcast at eastontp.com with any of your questions. I'm George Tekmachov, and for Steve the Big Anderson, we'll catch you next. Oh, did you see that note we got? Yeah, I don't, I don't think the we're guys, not supposed to do that anymore. Yeah, the guy's creeped out by you saying Big Cat. Yeah, maybe I'll just let you handle it. I okay. Uh, do we need to generate a new name for you? Do we need to create a new well, animal? I think he name? just wants you to say it all the way through. I uh, yeah. So, instead of letting me come in, with that was a weird a note. Quick, uh, it was like nickname. He was like, okay, I like the podcast, I like this, I like that. I hate the. I appreciate that because I have little idiosyncrasies about me. Is that the word idiosyncrasies? Yeah. And uh, you know things that things that bother me, and I would prefer if people tell me the things that bother them that I do. So well, I'm hear, okay with it. I hear stuff like that all the time, but I still haven't changed. Right. <laughs> uh, that wraps up our podcast. We'll talk to you later. Thanks very much. Bye.